This call is being recorded. Hello, and welcome to Sustainable Business Fridays, hosted by the BARD MBA in Sustainability. My name is Stephanie Milbergs, and I'm Assistant Director of the BARD MBA program. We are thrilled to have Arlen Wasserman, founder of Changing Tastes, on our show today. Before turning over the mic to BARD MBA student, Tony Nogales, I want to provide some background about the BARD MBA in Sustainability. We are one of a few programs globally that fully integrate sustainability into our curriculum from the ground up. We are a low residency program where part of our courses are taught online and the other portion are taught over long weekend residencies in New York City. We are a deeply experiential program with first year students partaking in a course called NYC Lab where they work on real world sustainability challenges for clients. This year, our clients are Siemens Wind Power, JetBlue, and the New York State Department of Agriculture and Markets. Thank you all for joining us today. Please do mute your phones and headsets at this time to reduce the chance of feedback during this call. I will now turn over the floor to Tony, who will introduce Arlen. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Stephanie, and uh, thank you, Arlen, for joining us today. Uh, and to give you a little bit of background on Arlen Wasserman, he is a graduate of the University of uh, Michigan with a Master's of Science, uh, 2002 recipient of the Food and Society Fellowship Award. Uh, in 2011, uh, he was also a recipient of a fellowship at Aspen Institute, and since then been Vice President of Sustainability with Sodexo, uh, Chair right now of the Sustainable Business Leadership Council with the CIA, and for so, quite a while, almost 12 years, mm-hmm. Founding partner of Changing Tastes. And so without further ado, I'll introduce Arlen Washerman. Thank you. Hi, Tony, and hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you all. Thank you. Um, So my first question, I guess, would be um, if you could just elaborate a little bit on on how you got into the sustainability field. Um, I would say I by way of saying I'm old, that I started working in this field before it was clearly defined. Um, You mentioned, Tony, that um, I got my degree in um, natural resources at the University of Michigan. I also um, have an additional degree in public health, also from the University of Michigan. And way back when was the first ever student at the University of Michigan to be enrolled in the School of Natural Resources and then also take classes in the business school. Um, And that was because from a a very early time, uh, now 30 years ago um, almost, I was keenly interested in the way that we assign a value or don't to natural resources and the way that the activity of business could reshape um, environmental systems on a large scale and how those uh, could also connect to public health, which is something that perhaps more people care about and has a long history of being assigned economic value. And that if I could crack those three things, there might be new ways of doing business that deliver value that people could be made to recognize and that also would be better for the planet. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's one of the key metrics that uh, we need to be focusing on. What do you think about, like, sort of the SASB uh, as they start to assign values? Because I guess assigning values is how we would track something. 
um, and those natural resources, you know, I guess, what is it, a, a tree in the yumber yard, yard is worth something, but then the tree in the woods is worth nothing, right? So it's yeah. one of those challenges you know, that we see this I, I have to admit that I am lucky enough to chair the Culinary Institute of America and Harvard Sustainable Business Leadership Council uh, and not an accounting board, so I know about SASB, but I have not read the standards in detail. I do know from, you know, a lot of work going back to when the focus was on pollution pre um, prevention and remediation that, you know, the debate about how much value to put on a natural system had a lot to do with when you damaged it, how much did you owe. Right. And I think that the new focus on how much value do natural systems create um, is, a, is, is a better one because it allows businesses to see a return uh, on their investment in the environment rather than one where they're trying to minimize their expense and penalties. So in general, I think the, the valuing of, of, of natural assets or natural capital is a positive move in business. Definitely. And I think, I, I guess, is, are businesses becoming do you, a little bit more aware of that now in the last, I don't know, 10, 10 years? Or it seems that they're looking forward rather than, like you say, just trying to remediate these, these issues. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a wholesale change, um, partly because um, – people who are um, younger are now in leadership roles and have a different attitude um, and are making different decisions. Um, but I think it's going faster than a generational shift because we're realizing how that we are, you know, to use a, a cliche, a wholly owned subsidiary of the planet. Um, and right. we can't just continue to, to spoil the commons, which was uh, when I was in college, you know, the main thought. And to right. give you just, you know, one little story from my background, um, about how that transformation went. Um, my first job while I was in grad school was to be the chief administrator um, of Ann Arbor's uh, nonprofit organization that ran its recycling drop-off station. And that was, uh, you know, a nice activity for the small group of people who really cared who would get in their car and drive their newspapers somewhere to drop them off. Um, Looking back, it's hard to say if that was really a big win for the environment or a little one, given the inefficiency of energy use and the carbon footprint of carrying 10 pounds of newspapers. Um, and then uh, after about a year or so of doing that, some of us had the um, idea that perhaps recycling, if it were made as easy as putting out your trash, would be something that could change the, the waste management industry. And so we, we ended up being young and, and not that smart or um, launching the nation's first weekly recycling program, thinking it was going to be easy to go from having a few thousand people come to our center to picking up uh, the trash and recyclables from 140,000 people in, a, in, a, in an integrated system. But that was a big change, that um, it wasn't just about a voluntary activity. It was about changing the way people manage waste. And, you know, fast forward a couple chapters in my career, um, the last of those kind of take care of the trash better things was to create uh, a program to redevelop uh, abandoned industrial sites in Michigan as part of a, a council that the then governor put together um, and look at laundering out the liability uh, so that a new owner could reuse the site for something productive new factory, new housing development, not have to worry about if they bought it, they'd be responsible for some 
what some older party who abandoned the site did. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sometime in the mid-90s, I think there was a shift to not thinking about how do we deal with the blighted sites or the brownfields, but how do we make right. land use overall more productive, which put me more squarely into thinking about urban land, agricultural and rural lands, and the connection between the two, and started to put me more into focusing on food. Yeah. Well, I mean, now with this whole urban farming has really sort of taken off in the last uh, uh, 10 years. I guess um, Europe is leading the way, although we have quite a few startups in New York City as well, and another in Montreal and, and all over. Um, you mentioned the uh, the younger generation, and um, I think as, you know, in, just right up north up here in Canada, uh, this last election is, it demonstrates that with um, that new... Uh, the new elections. Uh, pretty interesting. Uh, now, as climate change continues, we just had this huge uh, hurricane down in the Caribbean. Didn't really affect uh, too much of our of our. Although I'm sure the Mexicans feel a little bit differently about it, uh, but it didn't affect our uh, centralized um, food production areas. You think? Do you think that's? Is there going to be a, somewhat of a movement? trying to decentralize our, our food system that we have here in the U.S. It's so California and Florida um, related. Uh, I think that. That, that that's essential. And it's it's really not a decentralization. It's a de-specialization. California and Florida grow a lot of our fresh fruits and vegetables. Iowa and Minnesota grow a lot of our corn and soy. Canada grows a lot of our canola. So when mm-hmm. there is a drought or a or a severe weather that affects one of those regions, we lose our access to a high volume of ingredients. Uh, corn and soy, uh, you know, are the keys to animal feed. So although you may raise livestock in lots of parts of the country and most fresh dairy is produced locally, it's still about the animal feed. And so I think the move isn't to necessarily decentralize where we grow food. We grow food in every 50, in all 50 states. It's about increasing the diversity of crops we grow in each state and not relying on any one region to do all of it or mostly or almost all of it. Yeah. And on a global scale, that's a very big deal because the U.S. grows half of all the corn and soy that's traded globally for animal feed and Brazil grows, I think it's nearly 30 or 40 percent. So when those two regions have bad weather, the whole world finds that its system goes brittle. Last year, the U.S., and Brazil both had severe droughts. Right, and those, I mean, that trend doesn't seem to be, well, I, mean, I guess with El Nino it might help a little bit, but um, those are some definitely some challenges. So the despecialization, right, to a little bit more biodiversity, yeah. a little bit more of everything. What, from, what I, from what I see in the food system is we grow these, it's almost like commodity crops, and we're still importing here in the U.S. a lot of, like, vegetables, although we do grow the bulk of wheat and, and soy and corn that you, that you mentioned. Um, be interesting to see if, if, I guess, the small urban or small farmers need to maybe start prospering a little bit more. I'm not really sure how they would, how would we get the younger generation more interested in, in uh, farming and agriculture than uh, these old, I guess, farmers that are, Sort of consolidating into these large, huge uh, agricultural farms. Yeah. Um, 
there's two questions, there's two uh, problems. They're certainly intertwined in there. You know, first, I think we're all aware, uh, or many of us are aware, that the average age of the U.S. farmers is, is nearing 60 years, and that there aren't as many new farmers coming in to run the larger farms. Um, there are young people who want to run much smaller farms, but it takes a lot of small farms to equal one big farm. Um, right. I think treating um, the agriculture industry as a profession um, that educated people can thrive in is a, is a good move. I think we see that with the application of information technology and venture capital to farming, not talking about you know GMOs necessarily, but things like computerized tractor, drip irrigation, right. Um, aerial mapping of soil types, um, and other things that let a person who is a knowledge worker also be a good farmer. The other yeah. thing you mentioned was, you know, is even as our country eats only about half as much fruits and vegetables as the current dietary guidelines recommend, we're still importing a bunch. And a uh, really sharp economist, Jeffrey O'Hara, who now works at the Union of Concerned Scientists, took this challenge on when he wrote a report called Planting the Plate. And the net result of that analysis is that in order to grow all the fruits and vegetables we need to eat in the U.S., we need to change what we plant on 2% of our farmland because the enormous majority of farmland in the U.S. is dedicated to corn and soy and then farther down the line, wheat. So if all we did was grow a slightly smaller amount of corn and soy and wheat, we could grow all the fruits and vegetables we wanted. might not be exactly the same varieties that we import today. But importantly, that acreage right now isn't going to feed people. It's going to feed livestock. So if you look at something like the current World Health Organization announcement um, earlier this week, the processed red meats like bologna or salami uh, are human carcinogens, and red meat is a probable human carcinogen probably that in and of itself, those announcements and that realization is enough to drive down production, enough to free up all the land we need. It's, I think, a, a time when there is going to be disruption in the commodity farm system. And, uh, you know, there's a choice about whether or not the farmers are going to start planting fruits and vegetables or keep growing what they're growing and accept a lower price in the export market than they could get in the U.S., Right. Uh, there's one path there where we suddenly grow exactly what we need for a healthier diet, and it's really not all that different than what we're planting today. It's a one or two percent change, and that's one. Or, you know, that's probably something like 20 to 50 large farms changing what they're doing, and maybe 20 or 50 young people saying, "I'm going to, you know, raise the money and buy out a large farm that grew soy and grow much more valuable fruits and vegetables instead." And I say 20 or 50. Because a few thousand farms in total produce uh, sales over $250,000 a year. And those few thousand farms produce 85% of all the food we uh, produce in the U.S. Right. Um, Here we have, I guess, the the Young Farmers Association that just, I don't know. Um, I do do see somewhat of a trend and we did see an uptick, I guess, in small farms uh, this past, I don't know, five years or so. Uh, it's interesting that that article from the World Health Organization came off because we just had it at the culinary. We had uh, Dr. Colin Campbell, um, the author of the China study, uh, give a presentation in terms of uh, protein and, and meat intake 
and uh, the health ramifications or the health ramifications of eating it or not eating it, uh, essentially. And it was interesting to see. We'll see what happens uh, with that. Uh, as also in, in sort of in the larger industry, uh, as we see, you know, McDonald's, um, Coke, Pepsi, all these large, uh, I guess, food processing corporations, fast food, uh, for the most part, they are, I think, so, sort of backpedaling. Uh, from what I can see in terms of trying to deal with this new customer awareness. Uh, do you think that's sort of a trend, or do you think that's our, our new reality? Um, I think the move towards simple ingredients, which then allow you to have simple supply chains, um, is, 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 is a move that's going to stick. Um, the highly processed and manufactured foods, whether it's McDonald's or Coke, um, the market's already voting. Um, they're seeing their comparable or same-store same sales or same product sales declining by double digits every two to three years. And I think that uh, it is about a demographic change. It is about younger people coming into the prime of their earning and spending. Right. Um, it's about values being translated from the Gen Xers who are now having children who, sh who will also get those values, making up an, a rapidly growing share of the entire U.S. population. And the ability to say, trust us um, while we do, you know, advanced chemistry and include ingredients that you cannot recognize is it, simply going away. When you see Subway and Pizza Hut making the move, um, you realize that you're pretty much at the low price point, low quality point where this is already taking hold. And McDonald's is the last holdout. They're also the nation's largest restaurant company. And right. it will be more difficult for them to make the change because they have to leverage a larger supplier community. And that supplier community is going to offer them all sorts of incentives not to change because they have a lot of inventory bought up or, or uh, stored up or a lot of equipment invested in making foods that are losing favor. So McDonald's will be the last to move, and they'll get lots of incentives to not move. I think it was interesting, uh, not that anyone on the call might follow this, but um, the Pork Producers Association just came out um, yesterday with a full-page ad, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, criticizing Subway for committing to phase-out antibiotics. And you know an industry is really, really stuck in its ways when it criticizes one of its largest customers for a move that uh, is intended to help them improve their business and boost their sales. Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned a little bit more in terms of the younger, once again, the younger generation and their earning power. Do you think it's just a matter of, of cost? I mean, you would think if a small farmer could make more money per acre uh, growing fruits and vegetables and stuff like that, um, that they would try it out, I would think, but maybe not. Maybe, I guess, a lot of it has to do with behavioral change. You're just stuck in in the same sort of system that, I don't know. These, these are challenging uh, ways to get people to, uh, to, to, to move in a positive direction. A lot of cultural shifts, I guess. It also seems to be when we try to scale up uh, on a small small supply chain basis or in a small area a little bit more 
you, you mentioned a simple supply chain is, is the way to go as these ingredients start coming from all over the world. I guess our, our largest potato producer now is, is China, um, which is kind of odd, but I guess they do produce a lot more than anybody else these days. Um, in terms of policy, uh, you'd mentioned a couple of things where, where with the recycling uh, program. Um, is there anything that you would think of that we could probably do in terms, I don't know, maybe the school lunch program? I mean, Michelle Obama's been pretty um, forward-thinking with with uh, trying to attack obesity. Uh, is there anything that you would think that would try to improve that? Uh, well, there's always more that you can do to improve that. Um, is it practical? I don't know. Um, I think Mrs. Obama's made some very good strides. Um, she hasn't, you know, taken apart a system that is essentially intended to process commodities into foods for children, but short of disassembling um, a very large Childhood Nutrition Act uh, component, which is around farm subsidies, she's done, made great strides. Um, yeah, I agree. If you set that aside as another big to-do, the other thing might be around what culinary professionals and dietitians uh, do. Because one of the things that the improved school lunch standards have done are things like when you have pizza, it has lots of vegetables on it, although tomato sauce is still considered a vegetable too, and it has whole grains. And that's true for other things like chicken tenders that have been improved nutritionally. But with school lunch programs still focused on serving children pizza and chicken nuggets and burgers, um, you are training a, a generation of children to always eat pizza and chicken nuggets and burgers. And although it's healthier from a nutritional basis when you get it in school, if that's all you eat when you go then across the street to a quick-serve restaurant, it's not going to be healthy. So expanding what children are used to eating uh, is very important or moving away from junk food. And the other thing is, you know, while the, the, the soft drink or the soda industry then pushed out of schools pretty aggressively, the fast food industry and trying to cultivate uh, new diners is now moving in and saying one day a week, let us, you know, cater the, the lunch, if you will, and sell our pizza slices or chicken or burgers. And I think putting a stop to that um, is important. Uh, it took years to put a stop to selling soda in schools. Uh, this would be a next next practical and similar step. Yeah. One of our uh, uh, our classmates is one of the angry moms from the two angry moms. And uh, she's been very proactive um, in, in getting some of those changes, especially in, in Connecticut. Uh, you, you, I mean, if we talk about our young children and, and, and these behavioral changes and stuff like that and, and culinarians, wouldn't it be interesting if we could get, you know, culinary graduates to go into these kitchens and change the flavor profile and the palate of the young kids? Uh, it's such an impressionable age. And in terms of your development and growth, that would be, I think, a great way of utilizing our skills in a, in a positive way. That would be a big cultural shift for sure. Um, uh, it certainly would. And, I mean, I think you're, you're aware of the Chef's Move to School event mm -hmm. or, or program, which is voluntary and not nearly enough to reach across all the schools in the U.S., but at least it's a pilot of you know, example of what could be possible. Yeah. It would be interesting if we can get some sort of 
tuition reimbursement <laughs> for yeah. the for the for the students. Um, sort of a work workforce. Um, looking forward, I guess a uh, couple of you know uh, Ray Kurzweil is a pretty big uh, futurist. Um, what do you th- see kind of as big picture changes or trends in the next I don't know ten years, fifty years, hundred years? Um, um. Those are very different time frames. I think over the next 10 years, we're going to see that a lot of the global food commodity supply chains, especially for livestock and perhaps uh, farmed fish and seafood, are going to become really brittle. And by that, I mean, you know, there's going to be another problem like avian flu or another problem like early mortality syndrome and shrimp or another problem like porcine endemic diarrhea virus that causes the global supply to suddenly shrink prices to go up and companies that can't adapt quickly enough or haven't already found other more responsibly grown supplies um, miss their earnings. That's what happened when Darden Restaurant Group in part split into two companies uh, at the behest of activist investors. They missed the call on the price of shrimp. They didn't realize that the use of antibiotics in in Thailand and Vietnam was going to make their shrimp supply more um, susceptible to fast-moving diseases like early mortality syndrome, uh, which knocked out a third of the world's farm shrimp population within months. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to see things like that happen. Um, over a longer period of decades, I think what we're going to get is this um, despecialized approach to growing more. And then I think we're going to see um, a more um, thoughtful approach to managing biological production, especially in uh, areas like aquaculture uh, or integrated systems that include fish and plants in growing algae and plankton and also using legumes, which fix nitrogen to also do things like produce protein isolates and other ingredients that are um, central to the processed food industry, even uh, processed food that has clean ingredient profiles. Yeah. And 150 years from now, um, you know, climate change has a lot to do with it. Um, I think that um, for a lot of reasons, meat's going to be an occasional celebratory ingredient. But whether or not we have delicious food growing near our cities, or not as in part a business and policy decision, in part it's going to be what's the climate and what's the weather like. I don't think we're going to break free of global trade and food, in part because some regions will need to continue to rely on others for their food. Not everyone's going to have great growing conditions, even yeah. if we address greenhouse gas emissions as a, as a, as a global community. Yeah. So that, that's interesting. I mean, you know, uh, Jacques Cousteau, he was a big proponent of sea farming way back when, <laughs> and hopefully it will become a little bit more into uh, fruition as, as we go forward. Um, aquaculture, you know, a lot of these ideas have been around for a while, but we need to sort of get them, at a, like you say, into um, sort of a more of a standard or, or scaled-up production. Um, what about products like Beyond Meat, do you think? Do you think those are they have a place in, in our diet, in our food system? Over the long term, I don't think any one or two companies are going to own the patent for how you replace animals with plants. I think they're demonstrating production technologies, and if they work, 
then those production practices and methods will be adopted by other companies or they'll be bought and their production practices integrated. I think we've seen the same thing, you know, with the um, uh, IT slash, you know, smartphone um, industry where, you know, a startup comes up with a great app and the next thing you know they're acquired and it's a function that one large company offers. The next thing you know all companies offer that function. This is just uh, the venture capital model of innovation happening in the food space and how you come up with a great idea and then cash out just uh, and in the process allow it to become mainstream. Beyond Meat's about pea protein isolate um, and carrot fiber. Um, if it, they get a, a product that really works, it's not going to take long before uh, food technologists figure out another way to get the same texture out of the same ingredients without violating patents, or someone will buy them. Yeah. No, I just think there's a, I mean, if we can cut down on animal consumption and from a, you know, culinary perspective, a lot of it, like you mentioned, is, you know, texture. If we can get that texture, I mean, our chicken, especially a lot of our chicken nuggets and, you know, maybe some of these processed uh, foods that we don't really have a specific flavor. They're more like a like a canvas to absorb other flavors. So instead of chicken salad, something like that um, would be a good good way of cutting down on, on uh, maybe some of the soy and corn uh, that we've been producing. Absolutely. I mean, different animals have different feed conversion ratios. We talked about freeing up that 2% of farmland in the U.S. to grow all the fruits and vegetables we need. Um, that's as simple as maybe uh, someone saying, I'll have chicken, uh, a chicken uh, breast instead of a hamburger once every two weeks. That's probably yeah. a big enough change to free up all that farmland. Yeah. <clears throat> Think about it a little bit more <clears throat> holistically and long-term. Excellent. Tony, uh, can I definitely. jump in real quick? With, sure, yeah, please. I want to jump in, actually. Arlen, I was, I'm fascinated by this conversation about, you know, thinking about what the future could look like. And obviously, right now, we have such this local food movement, you know, eat local. So when you're saying, you know, that now in the future, right, you're, you're going to have to kind of know where things are being grown and have to get your food maybe from somewhere else. Where do you see this local movement going? Do you think we can sustain that? Or is that just going to go out the window and there's going to have to be another new kind of way to think about sustainability? Um, I think local has a lot of things embedded in it. And, you know, for those who are in the call or committed to local foods, um, you know, we're probably enjoying our, our breakfast or our lunch um, right alongside a cup of fair trade coffee that absolutely was not grown in Massachusetts. Um, and I think the local movement um, is already morphing into the good food movement or the real food movement. It's about knowing who grew your food, knowing that the scale is small enough that um, workers and other economic interests are respected. And it's also part of the movement to despecialize food production in almost every part, part of the U.S. where there's a city and enough people to push that. Um, so I think that, you know, this is the current label uh, for a movement that's going to continue for some time. Already people who are committed to local foods, say in bigger agricultural regions like California or Iowa, know it's not about eating food that's grown from one of the mega farms nearby. It's about a diversified farm providing you with your food. Right. 
it's not good enough that it's from 100 miles. It's how it was grown and what the business model was. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, and like, you know, there's this big movement now in supply chain transparency, and you mentioned a bit about simplifying supply chains, but really understanding the footprint of your supply chain and what's going on down to that farmer level. So absolutely agree with you because, you know, I couldn't drink the coffee I drank if I didn't, if I just wanted to do it locally. So um, absolutely understand what you're saying. So with that, because that movement, we have to think it is global in that way. We have to know more about where we're getting our food from. So if we don't have it right outside of our door, we need to know more about it. So what companies and organizations do you think are really doing the best work around food sustainability and the ones we should be supporting? Well, I wish I were a um, more, um, sorry, a, a less informed judge of what's really going on in the food and restaurant industry. Um, and I don't want to be cliched, but I think the companies like Whole Foods and Chipotle and um, Starbucks, although it's on the decline, have really done a lot to, to show that supply chain transparency and, uh, can, can occur on a large scale and that you can make a business of providing consumers with fewer, better choices rather than whatever choices and leave it up to them. It's why a Whole Foods store has far fewer products in it than a Walmart, why a Chipotle menu has far fewer products than McDonald's or Darden, and so on and so on. Um, when you go uh, beyond that space, um, there's lots of regional chains that I think, and growing chains that are doing it very well, like Roti Grill and Cava Meza and Lemonade and probably things that you're not going to find on Bard College. Um, and when you go beyond that, um, it gets a little murky for me to name companies that we can stumble upon every day. I think there's a lot of uh, venture money flying, flowing into technology companies to replace animals and uh, technology companies to make agriculture more efficient. Um, I don't think that uh, transgenomics are, are, are a long-time solution, long-term solution, and we're starting to find out that they are not good for the public health, but for reasons that many of us didn't realize, such as that glyphosate or Roundup, the key pesticide used in the production of GMO corn and soy, is a probable human carcinogen, according to the World Health Organization. Uh, the U.S. hasn't quite recognized that yet, although California has asked for disclosure and labeling. Um, so, uh, in terms of food production technology companies, I don't have I don't have a winner to, to, or a great company to announce. I think that what Beyond Meat and Hampton Creek and others are doing is great, but those companies I think will go away after proving that innovative practices are possible. Fair enough. Well, thank you for that. That's just it's informative to hear of your perspective of all of it. And as many, um, some of our callers probably know that, um, you know, Chipotle has been noted to be a billion dollar business as well as having the sustainable practices. So it actually shows that it brings revenue in, um, which ultimately leads to profit. So it's great. And from the technology side, you're right. I don't really know (laughs) the best winners there, but very interesting to think about. So um, we have a couple callers in the line. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. Okay, one other thing, you know, when you mentioned Chipotle, it reminds me of one other thing. So I think uh, a lot of people don't realize in terms of serving prepared meals, Whole Foods Prepared Foods Program has higher revenue than all of Chipotle. 
And that speaks to the move in the U.S. to ask companies to give us meals. And that means a food service professional or a food service company is choosing where the ingredients come from and in what amounts and proportions they should go on the plate. And we're asking it to be affordable, yummy, convenient, whatever, entertaining. And so I think that there's a lot of businesses, and I named a few, and I, I inferred it to uh, show that you can succeed in business by giving a carefully selected or curated set of choices to the consumers, even if it's just a few. And that's a radical change from feeling you have to offer everything, and it's up to the consumer to decide whether it's healthy or sustainable. Instead, you make those choices, and you win in the marketplace, and that's a big change. Yeah, I think so. we've been going from more and more into uh, too many choices, you know, and, yeah. and sometimes that's a detriment. Yeah, Stephanie, you said you had some callers? Yeah, no, thanks. And, you know, Arlen, it makes me think of all those companies like Blue Apron and all those meal service companies now. And I know a lot of them are trying to be sustainable. And it's interesting to think through, does that make us lazier consumers where we don't really learn how to cook properly or or not? Um, But I do agree that narrowing choice does help in some of this and really informing people what they're eating. So, um, but with that said, Tony, we do have some callers on the line. So what I want to do at this time is unmute um, those of you who are muted, and then you guys can ask some questions. So there's really no raising hand function on this. So do feel free just to speak up if you have a question. Um, Anyone out there want to ask Arlen something about our food systems? Um, I just thank you for letting us be on the call. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. My name is Lori, and I'm Oneida from Wisconsin. Oneida people are originally Haudenosaunee from the New York area, where the call is from today. And But I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I've also lived in Chicago. And in Chicago, I worked with the Chicago American Indian community, and we were doing projects over a span of 10 years, uh, funded by the National Science Foundation. It was a partnership between Northwestern University, American Indian Center in Chicago, and the Menominee Tribe in Wisconsin, along with a lot of other organizations, local and national. Anyway, what I learned from that experience is we we wanted to teach kids, um, we wanted to focus on STEM education, increasing Um, success rates or increasing um, better learning practices for Native students to succeed in the school system, right? So we did a whole community project around um, what do our elders say, what does our family say, what does science say, and like kind of grapple between this Western knowledge systems and indigenous knowledge systems to find practical ways of teaching and learning science, if that makes sense. So What we came to, we did a lot of outdoor activities with families and um, just community, like native community in the Chicago area. And that has a long history of like intermixing tribes. Anyway, my point is to say we came to like harvesting foods that grow in the Chicago area. And Chicagoland has been home to Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, different tribal peoples from this area. And for a long time, we've been harvesting food. And I say we, I'm Oneida, right, Turtle Island. I would call the United States Turtle Island. 
it's in our, that's English translation for this place, right, that we live on. And there's a lot of variety of food. And you guys mentioned, simp- like, simplifying our choices. I think our choices currently in corn, the fact that corn and wheat and these single ingredients are create the so many choices, but it's really an illusion. Like there's way more choices than what Whole Foods offers and the diversity of choices. It's beyond corn, wheat, and recognizing and educating through nonprofits and local communities, learning about the foods that have grown on these lands in different parts of the country for millennia and have been consumed by people here for that long. We need to be bringing that into the more public eye. I'm, that's my comment. I'm sorry. I don't really have a question, but hopefully that sparks some discussion. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing this up. I mean, I do believe in we having these conversations, thinking about indigenous populations and how really this affects. And also, just as you said, I think there's a link. You can really link STEM education and food together. That's an entirely different subject, but really interesting to kind of think about as we think about the technology behind a lot of food and then how it links back into the actual people. So thanks for that. I don't know if anyone has anything they want to build off of that or another question related or Arlen, if you have comments, um, I'll let you all have the floor. I, I have a question. This is Carrie McIndoe um, from New York, and I just have a, a brief question to see if Arlen could um, have a brief conversation or a mention about his opinion and an impression on fair wage for the farm workers. Uh, and I say that I'm, I'm helping a group of uh, rural migrant workers in upstate New York through their youth economic group to try to teach, to teach high school students how to make their own cooperative. And, and, and most of all, their, their parents work in the fields, and there's a big problem with fair wage. Uh, could you comment on that? Yeah, I'm not fluent in all the details of, of that movement, um, and I'm, I'm probably at least more aware of the move for uh, fair wages in the food service industry. But I think we're, regardless of where you sit, there needs to be a standard that whoever is producing or serving our food needs to be paid enough to eat a healthy and culturally appropriate diet and shouldn't be asked to uh, produce food that they themselves can't have access to because they're not paid enough. It, it, it gets to be a, a big question about that, about the pay and also about the, um, the the economics behind it and, you know, what we choose to import versus grow based off the economics, based off the difficulties of the farmer's choice. Yeah. Um, according, I mean, according to like world statistics, uh, the Americans pay far less for their food than other, or at least portion of their food, in terms of percentage, uh, than other, you know, societies in other countries. Um, some, well, some, one of the, I believe, one of the Indian prime ministers said that uh, that there wasn't a lack of food. Um, it was just well. We know it's a matter of distribution, uh, but also that the price food, the price of food here, especially in the U.S., need, needs to go up, which would hopefully lower demand. Um, and you know, those are some pretty big comments um, in terms of statistics. You have to think about that a little bit more. Um, but I don't think we pay enough for our food here. I think the, the price of food should go up. We need to appreciate it a little bit more. 
Yeah, Tony, do you think that's based on, you know, just the price of our foods lower because we eat more processed foods and things like that? Or because I find fruits and vegetables actually quite expensive at the farmer's market. So as much as I want to eat them. So I just want to, is it because of our other things in our diet that other people don't eat, you think? Um, well, I, I think probably the bulk of it would probably have to do a lot with, with processed foods, but also where you buy um, our food. Uh, if you're buying at the farmer's market, of course, I think you are going to pay a little bit more. I think the the CSA business model um, has been a sort of a lifeblood. And Arlen had mentioned the connection uh, back to sort of the food system that that helps form those relationships and makes those bonds even stronger. Uh, another issue that we haven't really talked about, um, which is about food waste. You know, they say 40% of our food uh, ends up sort of in the, in the garbage. And so maybe our production um, needs to be less, maybe the transportation, maybe um, we have too many choices, as Arlen mentioned as well, in, in the grocery stores. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of different uh, aspects to that. I don't know what you think about that, Arlen. Um, you know, I, I come back to it and, you know, thinking about the, the first questioner. Um, the, uh, it is an illusion that we have a lot of choices when they're only made from a handful of crops, but it's also a reality that you give people choices that have wildly different environmental and uh, public health and social attributes and then say it's up to you as a consumer to be info make informed and right choices, not us, the business, who has thousands of professionals scouring the stuff and buying it and putting it to our on our shelves every day. Right. Um, that's where I think uh, that, that's where my comments about offering fewer choices is about. Um, to the extent that the food industry is one where people are low paid and people think about information workers or knowledge workers, um, you can make extra money by making better choices that reflect your shop, your customers' values and let them know that they can um, get an added service, which is buying something aligned with their values when they shop, when they shop with you. Right. Oh, very true. Once again, those, those cultural shifts are changing. Yeah, Arlen, so I was interested, you know, there's a piece of changing taste your business with um, you kind of have five ways that you kind of impact food sustainability. And one is that you talk about the changing um, role of the culinary professional. So, you know, you know, you mentioned that, you know, people have responsibility to, you know, know what they're doing, what they're putting into their body. But there is you know, this benefit from companies where if they do what consumers want and add value, they're going to probably make more money. So, you know, how far do you think culinary professionals need to take that education piece and putting food that's really healthy in front of people that's really good for them? Or is that really up to the consumer? Like they're just their job is to make something taste really good. What are your thoughts about that? And how far do, does the field need to go in that space? I think that the field is transforming already and it needs to go quite far. I mean, chefs are now trusted to be advocates for nutrition, childhood nutrition, labor issues, environmental issues, dietary issues. Um, they're some of the most trusted and visible spokespeople. 50 years ago, that wasn't true. Um, and because there are chefs who have taken on that role they, uh, in a very visible way, thanks to television or the internet or whatever, um, the profession is now expected to know this stuff. Um, additionally, because food companies, you know, there's two considerations here. One is 
Can you sell the stuff? Is your brand trusted for good food? And the other is, as I mentioned before, will your supply chain support you or are you choosing to source and serve the wrong ingredients? Uh, the chef's more central to business success than ever before as well. So I think that, you know, maybe not tomorrow, but in probably five or ten years, if you are a chef working inside um, either a restaurant that purports to be healthy or sustainable or look committed to local, or if you're in a big company making business decisions as a chef, you need to have a fairly good understanding of current environmental, economic, and nutrition issues, not just how to cook food or what's, what, what foods pair to, together well. Sure. Yeah, it's great to hear that. So, um, yeah, I just want to get your take on that um, as that's part of what I feel like, you know, part of what your business does. And I think all these things are connected. And I think a lot of what we've talked about today just talks about all the systems thinking of it all, you know, with with the changing of what climate change can really do and what effect education can really have and how that affects every system. So really interesting. Um, so at this time, I'm Tony... You're more than welcome to ask more questions, but does anyone else on the line um, have anything they wanted to ask Arlen? So it doesn't seem like, uh, Tony, we have any questions at the time. If you have some other questions for Arlen, uh, feel free to proceed. Okay. I mean, Arlen, if I'm not sure, I mean, we're pretty much there on time. If you have any uh, closing comments or, or, or some other points that you want to bring up. You know, I just want to say thank you. This has been a really um, uh, lively and engaged conversation, especially as one's on the phone go. And I'm also really glad to see um, the BARD students um, on the phone and engaged in the conversation because the extent the food industry is going to change, it's because the smartest students who want to work in business, you all decide that the food industry is an equally ripe opportunity like any other industry uh, someone could go into. So I'm really glad to have the opportunity and appreciate um, the time. Well, we'd like to thank you for for joining us. Um, And if there's anything that we could do, um, I think actually Steph has some some stuff that she's going to send your way. Uh, But this has been really insightful. And we really appreciate you being part of our Sustainability Business Fridays. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, it's just nice to have everyone here on the phone and participating. And Carrie McIndoe is one of our capstone advisors. So it was really great um, to have her, you know, be here and having some other questions, you know, from from the Midwest. And it's really neat that we get callers in even outside of our BARD MBA program. So thank you all so much for being part of this conversation because it's really important as really what we, you know, food is something that affects each and every one of us every day and what we put in our bodies. So really thinking through this in the bigger way is, um, I think, very important and something that our MBA program um, does think about because that's part of how business works now. So um, so thank you, to, you know, Tony and Arlen, for a great conversation. And for the rest of you here on the line, um, join us next Friday at noon as we continue our Sustainable Business Friday series. We'll be speaking with Lev Nathan about leading from your legacy. So thank you all for being a part of today's conversation. And thanks again to Arlen and Tony. And have a very happy Halloween, everyone. You too, Steph. Thank you. Thanks. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Arlen. Bye.